From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told and you're among friends. Tonight and for the full two hours, we'll unravel the RFK assassination. Lisa Pease, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, the real history of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, is standing by. And uh, it promises to be quite an evening. Uh, Not to mention the fact that we have a super blood wolf moon lunar eclipse coming. The only total lunar eclipse of 2019. It'll light up the sky across North America, South America, as well as parts of Europe, Africa, and Asia. The whole enchilada. We all get to see this amazing show. And it's uh, being referred to uh, by a variety of names. But, of course, the best has to be Super Blood Wolf Moon. And the the super refers to the fact that the moon will be closest to the Earth in its orbit when the total eclipse takes place. Blood is a reference to the reddish hue the moon will take on during the eclipse. And wolf, I didn't know this, wolf is taken from the old farmer's almanac as full moon moons in January. Full moons in January are apparently known as full wolf moons. And if you want to watch it live, uh, NASA says that the edge of the moon will begin, or it, well, it did begin to enter the uh, the Earth's uh, penumbra, the outer section of the shadow, at about 6.30 p.m. Pacific or 9.39 Eastern. So that was a few hours ago. And then over the cor- course of uh, uh, that next hour, the moon started to dim as it traveled through the penumbra. Uh, then at 10.30 Eastern, the moon reached the umbra, at which point it became significantly darker. And uh, now at 11, well, in about 40 minutes' time, the moon will be all the way inside the umbra. And that's when the eclipse truly begins. So at about 20 minutes to midnight, or 38 minutes from now, and the best view will occur at 12.12 12 a.m. Eastern. All right, there you go. There's your... Uh, your uh, full uh, wolf blood moon or blood wolf moon eclipse uh, update. Now, quick programming note. No live stream tonight on our YouTube channel, uh, Strange Planet. But we will be streaming live next week, January 27th. And that'll be uh, two hours with former U.S. Secret Service, uh, Service agent Gary Byrne. In a lie too big to fail, longtime Kennedy researcher of both JFK and RFK, Lisa Peace, lays out in meticulous detail how witnesses with evidence of conspiracy were silenced by the Los Angeles Police Department, how evidence was deliberately altered and in some instances destroyed, and how the justice system and the media failed to present the truth of the case to the public. Peace reveals how the trial was essentially a sham and how the prosecution did not dare to follow where the evidence led. A lie too big to fail asserts the idea that a government can never investigate itself in a crime of this magnitude. Was the convicted Sirhan Sirhan a willing participant, or was he a mind-controlled assassin? It's fallen to independent researchers like Peace to lay out the evidence in a clear and concise manner, allowing readers to form their theories about this event. Peace places the history of this event in the context of the era and provides shocking overlaps 
between the high-profile murders and attempted murders of the time. Lisa Peace goes further than anyone else in proving who likely planned the assassination, who the assassination team members were, and why Kennedy was deemed such a threat that he had to be taken out before he became President of the United States. Lisa Peace is the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Based on more than two decades of investigative research, Peace's recently published book has already been hailed as the magnum opus of RFK assassination research by the acclaimed author of JFK and the Unspeakable, James Douglas. Peace was previously published in a collection of essays titled The Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X with our good friend James Eugenio. Lisa Peace, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great, although I'm, I have to say I'm a little disappointed I'm not going to get to see the blood moon. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. But I have seen it before, and it really is spectacular. So ah. not that I want to lose any viewers, but, you know, take... Take your radio outside and take a look, because it is a beautiful sight to see. Exactly. Or just take your radio over to the window, at, at uh, the very least. There you go. Lisa, I've got to ask you about this uh, this big announcement. Um, my, ah, yes. My understanding is that you, members of the Kennedy family, members of the King family, all calling for sort of a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Tell me more about this. Yes. David Talbot, the former founder of Salon Magazine, Salon.com, got together like the the biggest lights in the JFK and RFK and MLK research community. We reached out to people we knew in the King and the Kennedy families and because the feeling is that there are still witnesses whose stories have never even been recorded, who saw or heard really important things and you know before they die, it's like this is the last chance to get a lot of information on the record. There are people who have come forward and said I have information but i only want to give it to a credible investigation and it is historic and that it's the first time that members of the king and the kennedy family called not just for an investigation into their own cases but into an investigation of literally each of the four big assassinations of the 1960s which was president kennedy malcolm x Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, the last two, a couple months apart in 1968, and after which the country basically had a nervous breakdown. I, I don't think there's any better way to describe it. Right. Uh, so this is this is truly a historic moment, and you know I'm hoping tomorrow, being Martin Luther King Day, that the media will give it the appropriate treatment because I've had people say to me over the years, well, if any of this is true, how come the King family hasn't said it, or how come the the Kennedy family hasn't said it? Well, now they're saying it. They're saying it. They're saying it. They're saying these were all conspiracies. They were all not investigated properly, and they're calling for a public inquiry, kind of modeled on the South African Truth and Reconciliation Movement, in the hopes of lobbying for actual you know, prosecutions or legal action where possible. Now, we're, we're more than 50 years after these events, so a lot of the people who were directly involved are dead. Uh, you know, but there, there may still be a few people, and I am all in favor of trying people in absentia. I mean, even after death, I think the best deterrent to losing future leaders to assassinations is to really expose at a deep level every conspirator, how it was done, Every time you expose and prosecute somebody again, even posthumously, it makes it that much harder because no one wants that in their legacy. It's like they want to get away with it 
forever. Right. You don't want to get away with it just for a few years, and then the grandchildren find out what horrible people they were. Right. Well, and ultimately, even aside from naming names, it's absolutely essential if the country is to move forward that they know the, the truth as uncomfortable and ugly as it may be. Exactly. We I, A lot of us walk around in kind of a dignified version of the world, and everything's hunky-dory, and America's the best and the brightest, and... Nothing bad happens here, and of course we all know that's just not true. No, I mean I do believe and it's I not be- healthy to no. go around with that kind of attitude. I agree. I believe in the uh, I believe in the idea of American exceptionalism. It hasn't obtained it yet, but the foundation is there if it you know would choose to follow that path. Um, however, uh, I, I, I always maintain that nothing really has changed in the way the world operates. From the Middle Ages, which was, you know, very hmm. bloody, very violent. You had kings and queens killing, you know, brothers and sisters and, and, and infanticide and all that nastiness. Now they just simply use far more sophisticated methods. Um, yes. <laughs> I gotta ask you though about how this journey began for you because you were at the time kind of more of a JFK assassination researcher and, and you went looking for more information on JFK and, right. and the library. Well, I was at that. Yeah, tell me the story. This is amazing. Yeah, I used to work uh, very, like, a couple blocks away from the downtown central Los Angeles library. And so what else do you do on your lunch hour but go to the library and read microfilm? Because I'm a little geeky that way. (laughs) God bless the geeks. (laughs) As I was going through microfilm on the JFK case, one day I pulled out the quote-unquote wrong drawer, and I recognized immediately what it was. I knew just a little bit about the Robert Kennedy assassination, and one of the things I knew is that they'd had this, group called Special Unit Senator, and they had investigated the case, and then they locked up all their files in t- from 1968 until 1988, and this was about 1992. So I, I thought, wow, that microfilm's only been out for about four years. I bet not a lot of people have looked in it, and I bet if I go through it, I'll find things that other people haven't found yet. And so I just pulled out a reel. They weren't labeled in any way, so I you know, just grabbed one from the middle of the pack and threw it in the machine, and the first few documents I read were talking about a second suspect who was apprehended at the hotel that night, a guy who was literally taken into custody and put in handcuffs, and that was Michael Wayne. And I'm like, well, who is this and why have I never heard about him? And so the curiosity as I started reading that, and it didn't at all match the official story, which told us there was only one shooter and he did all the shots and and so the, the more I dug into it, the more I realized what a big story it was and how completely different it was. And at first, I was just personally very interested. I never had any intention of writing a book when I started. That was just the furthest thing from my mind. I couldn't imagine how much work it was to write a book and didn't have any desire to do that. But I was starting to write little articles for Probe magazine, so I ended up writing a few articles on the case that were very uh highly cited and, and used across the Internet, and that led to an appearance um, on the Discovery Channel. Years ago, they did a, a very good little piece on the assassinations, and they interviewed me and several of the other authors on the case, and they do what they call a survey, you know, where they get different people's opinions. And I'm like, instead of a survey of opinions, why don't you actually investigate the case? And they're like, well, that's not what we do. <laughs> Because that's much more difficult. So a survey of opinions is very easy. You go, you know, get a bunch of people on tape and then you quote them. That's a survey. That's what most documentaries are. And then you figure out whose opinion you want to feature or elevate and whose you don't. But a real investigation takes time. And I, I tell people they don't understand. It's like journalists don't have a lot of free time. They're given stories every day. So to expect a journalist to dig into this in any depth, 
and be able to understand it is really asking a lot. And uh, I had 25 years of side time, you know, after work, at my lunch hour, you know, on my weekends, where I just looked into it on my own. And it, frankly, it wasn't until Shane O'Sullivan's book came out, which was a very good book, by the way. Definitely recommend that. Uh, but it didn't go far enough with what I knew. And I thought, dang, I'm really going to have to write a book now because I was really hoping he would, like, pull out some of the what I thought were the important pieces of the case as I had come to discover them. And, for example, I found a third shooter on the table because there was Sirhan was firing a gun. Somebody was firing a gun right next to Kennedy. Uh, but there was a third shooter on the table that three credible witnesses saw and a fourth one probably saw from his description. And, again, this is a story not in anyone else's book. So, like I said, I had no intention of writing a book, but the weight of what I had learned began to weigh on me, and I felt a responsibility to tell the story. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Sirhan Sirhan, uh, because Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, in the last five, six months, I guess, went to visit a Sirhan Sirhan. I set that Sirhan. up. I set that you up. set that up? I I, yes, Bobby Kennedy got in touch with me uh, for something about American values that he was working on, and we had a little conversation, and he, you know, kind of hit it off, and he had me back to help him with a part of his book, and I was trying to show him the part about the Castro assassination plots, which are often uh, blamed on Robert Kennedy, even though in the CIA's own internal Inspector General report, they make it very clear that they knew they had no authority from the Kennedys for these plots. And they say in their own language, can we claim executive authority for these plots and answer their own question, not in this case? And then they add, while it is true that there was kind of this intense atmosphere of do something about Castro, we did only tell them about the plots that had ended. We didn't tell them anything about the plots that were continuing. And Bobby had always felt that, and he'd even gone to um, Cuba and talked to Castro, and he had come to the same conclusion, but he didn't know about this CIA document proving that. So, you know, I sat shoulder to shoulder with him, and, and we were talking about the RFK case, of course, and I said, well, would you like to talk to Sergei? I said, I can put you in touch with his, his lawyer. And he's like, yes, absolutely. So I got on the phone. I called Lori Dusick, who flew out to California because you can't get in to see Sirhan unless one of his lawyers is present. And uh, they, you know, drove down and went and spoke to him. And I called him, you know, the next day. I'm like, well, what would you think? And he said, he's a sweet man. You know, I... I think he's as much a victim, you know, as my father. And I, I quoted that in my book. I'm, I'm sure I'm misquoting it now, but it's, it's close to that. Were you surprised that it had taken Bobby Jr. so long to want? I mean, he must, no. he must have had these nagging no, and, questions. And, and, and of course, I asked him, you know, what took you so long? Because he's kind of apologized. He's like, I'm really sorry that none of us have come forward sooner. And he said, honestly, I didn't believe any of this until probably two or three years ago when Paul Schrade, one of the pantry victims, said, yes. look, I was a friend of your father, you know, I'm not going to live forever, and you really need to see this evidence. And Bobby is a very smart man. He's a legal, you know, a lawyer. This is what he does for a living. He actually has a job. He doesn't just sit around and, you know, coast on his, his Kennedy fortune. You know, he actually works. And, uh, and he's, like I said, he's a very bright man. He's one of the brightest people I've ever talked to in the sense that, as I explained the case, he grasped some of the more nuanced, detailed, intricate parts of it more quickly than almost anybody I'd talked to. So it was really fun 
And, and you can imagine my excitement at finally being able to discuss the case with a member of the Kennedy family. I mean, that was just like the happiest moment of my entire life. Did, did and, and Robert Jr. leave his meeting with Sirhan convinced that Sirhan well, did not shoot his he, father? He's convinced that he was... I'm going to let him answer that because he will be answering that. So I'm going to let him answer that in his own words. But I will also say he has not yet read my book. He's apologized to me for not yet reading it, but he's like, I'm in court until March, and then I'll read it. So, uh, But he will have a lot to say about that case in the months and years to come, and I, I know that for a fact. So, yeah, I don't want to preempt him on anything. Right. What about other members of the Kennedy family? What about well, Caroline? Well, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend has also joined the call, and some of the other members, here's the thing. I had a call from somebody who claimed to be a very close Kennedy family friend and said a lot of them are aware of your research, but they're really terrified. And that person said that Ted Kennedy had gone to the family after Bobby was killed and said, we're not going to look into this anymore. We're not going to talk about it. Because I think they all felt that talking about it was what got Bobby killed because Bobby was seriously investigating quietly, somewhat under the hood, but he was seriously investigating the JFK assassination. Right. Well, some people say that's what got John Jr. killed. Yes, because he too was looking into it. You know, he'd been in touch with one of the better researchers, you know, somebody quiet and under the hood that most people never even heard of, who had some really interesting documents. It's not any one thing. I don't believe it's like somebody's going to be killed for just one thing. I really think all three Kennedys were killed because they represent a worldview that is incompatible with the power structure of today. The power structure of today says America has the right to invade foreign countries and steal their resources if it benefits our business class and the quality of life of Americans. Then it's our right to go trash other nations, basically. That's kind of the dominant worldview. Now, the Kennedy's view was more, we have the right to cooperate with other nations and to barter and, and you know, do what we can to lower the prices of their resources. But they were offering economic aid, educational aid, food in exchange uh, for treaties as opposed to, you know, purely military gun float, aid. They, yeah, gun they were not about the arms sales. They were about trying to right. elevate the lives of everyone. And that worldview doesn't make the people at the highest rungs of power, which are not the people we elect. They're way above that. Now, let me, there's a funny book. Yes, all right. I just want to say there's okay. a funny book about David Rockefeller where they talk about how he would never stand when the president came in the room because he knew he would still be in power once they were gone. Right, right. They, that's, they said that when, when the Queen visited the United States, she would visit David Rockefeller before the president. I want to talk about Sirhan Sirhan in the weeks leading up to the assassination at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. He worked at a, a mm-hmm. racetrack, correct? He had worked at a horse farm ah, okay. where they trained the racetrack horses. He didn't work at the racetrack. Right. And that job had ended a year earlier when he had a serious fall from a horse, and he got kicked and trampled, so he had a lot of internal injuries. Um, but he did not have any brain damage. They tested him extensively for that before the trial, no brain damage. And, in fact, the doctor said his injuries you know, were painful but not very serious. And what I found was very odd then is if they weren't that serious, how come he went to the doctor every month and sometimes twice a month for the next 13 months? Exactly. If I get bruised and battered, I don't go to the doctor every month. For the next this is where it all begins. All right, Lisa, stay put. Yeah, we'll come back in a moment and uh, continue to delve into the RFK assassination. Lisa Peace, my guest, the author of 
a lie too big to fail. Right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Lisa Peace stays with us for the full two hours. And uh, she is uh, the author of a book. It's already being hailed as a magnum opus. Uh, it is A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. We were talking about Sirhan Sirhan's history prior to that fateful evening at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles in uh, June of 1968. Right. So he's seeing this doctor regularly, every month. Well, and I don't know which doctor he was seeing, because it was FBI reports that he had been to a doctor. I didn't dig into the doctor himself, but the doctor who had treated him initially thought the, the wounds were rather minor. So that does suggest that he's not just going to a regular doctor, that... Something else is going on. Right. Tell me about and Sir. And a lot of people in the pantry thought Sir Han seemed to be in an altered state. He seemed unnaturally calm and unnaturally strong because although he's a, he's a very little guy, he's five four and slight. But Rosie Greer, who's a huge football tackle, had trouble getting the gun from him. And the people who were wrestling with him, it took like six people to subdue him and pin him to a table. And it's something that under hypnosis, people have noticed acts of extreme strength that are not present in normal behavior. Fascinating. It's like your mind isn't interfering with your ability, right. you know, the way maybe it does when we're not under hypnosis. And even after his arm is pinned to the steam table by Rosie Greer, he still is firing almost robotically his Iverson 8-shot. But I want to yes. ask you about his interest in hypnosis. You talk about Sirhan Sirhan. He was attending hypnotist shows and so forth? Well, he had gone to um, the Rosicrucian meeting in Pasadena where they had done a hypnosis show, and I think he volunteered for that, as I recall. And he was not so much interested in hypnotism, per se. He was interested in controlling his own mind. And, you know, here he was, an immigrant who had bad grades in college because his sister was dying and he had to miss a lot of classes to take care of her. So his grades suffered. So he wasn't able to kind of move up the chain, the ladder, the way most people, he didn't have the opportunities most people did. So he was looking into different ways of manifesting money into his life and he read Rosicrucian literature that's like, if you write it down, it will happen. And so, you know, he was practicing different ways of trying to bring money to him. Or so they say, because here's the problem. Once somebody has been hypnotized, it's hard for them to know which of their behavior was real and which was a product of hypnotic suggestion. So we could say, well, it was Sirhan's interest in hypnosis that got him into this mess, or we could say somebody got him into this mess and made it look like it was his interest in hypnosis. And this is where we really don't know. So for a large part of my book, I actually leave Sirhan out of it in the sense that I really try and figure out what happened and then towards the end what was Sirhan's role because for listeners who don't know the story there's a very simple official explanation Robert Kennedy had just finished a speech in the embassy ballroom at the ambassador hotel he walks through a narrow pantry area Sirhan steps out in front of him fires a gun at him Kennedy falls he dies 26 hours later 
Strahan is immediately taken into custody. The police say there's only one gunman and, you know, case closed. And that's basically what most of the public knew. And no real trial and, because Sirhan, uh, I guess on the advice of his lawyers, pleaded guilty, right? Right, because he was asked to plead guilty in the hopes of sparing him the death penalty, because there was a death penalty in California for many years. Now, Sirhan benefited from a change in the law, which removed the death penalty, because otherwise he'd be dead by now. Right. But that law was changed. So he's still alive. He's still in jail. I talked to his brother, Munir. Um, in fact, Sir Han is reading my book <laughs> in jail. Isn't it interesting, so, uh, Lisa, how in these big-profile assassinations, there is never a trial. The alleged perpetrator, they plead guilty, or there's never a trial. Well, of course, there was a trial in the Sir Han case, but it was not a real trial. It was very much a show trial in the sense that the defense team for Sirhan in their opening statement said, yes, he shot Kennedy, but <laughs> the whole point of the trial was to determine the level of guilt of Sirhan. And what really upset me as I read through the trial transcript is they couldn't even prove the bullets came from Sirhan's gun. And I got to this point, and I'm like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> if Sirhan didn't shoot any bullets, how guilty is he? And was his role really to be the distractor and not the assassin? And, you know, it's clear. If you look at the evidence, and, oh, my gosh, I just have so much of it in my book, a number of witnesses, like, I want to say, eight or 12 at a minimum in my book, and there were many more I didn't quote, thought Sirhan was firing blanks or caps. And some of these people are really credible, like mm -hmm. people who had been in the military and really knew their guns, or Rafer Johnson, who had been in, you know, hundreds of events, and he said it looks like a starter pistol throwing off residue. People describe little shower of paper after the shots, and that's what happens. A piece of paper that's all wadded up into, you know, a blank and stuffed in a shell flash burns as it's ejected, and it creates a visible flame, which a number of witnesses reported seeing from his gun. Real bullets don't create a visible flame because there's no paper burning to create that visible flame. And so the more I read, the more I realized Sirhan was not a shooter of anybody. He was firing blanks. And then the question is, what level of guilt do you assign if he's still part of the conspiracy? And that's where the hypnosis really comes in. If he was hypnotized, did he understand at any level, under hypnosis or not, that he was participating in a Robert Kennedy assassination? Right. Because they say, and this is true, you can't make somebody do something in hypnosis against their will. But what they never tell you is you can fool people into thinking the circumstances are different, and that's how you get people to do things against their will. Maybe he thought under hypnosis he was at a firing range. Well, and that's what Dan Brown, who's one of the country's experts on hypnosis, Sirhan's current attorneys, William Pepper and Lori Dusick, hired Dan Brown to sit with Sirhan for about 60 hours and just listen to him, because what he had been hypnotized by his defense attorneys, but the hypnosis was terrible. It was like, Sirhan, look at Robert Kennedy coming towards you. Well, he didn't see that under hypnosis. Sirhan, reach for your gun and shoot him. What are you, what, what, what are you feeling, Sirhan? You know, it's like it wasn't open-ended at all. It's very much leading the witnesses. It's kind of appalling, actually. So what Dan Brown did was completely different. Where are you now? What's happening? What do you see? Is anybody around you? He asked completely open-ended questions. And the story that unfolded under Dan Brown's prompting is that a voluptuous girl in a polka dot dress mm. seductively, you know, kind of came on to Surahan. He was totally 
you know, enamored of her. He thought he was going to get lucky that night. He follows her around like a puppy. She takes him into the pantry, and they get up on a tray stand, which is a fairly strong piece of equipment, and it could support the two of them. Vince DiPiero, one of the witnesses of the pantry, notices this girl in a polka dot dress with Sirhan on. He didn't know his name was Sirhan, but he saw the guy with the girl in the polka dot dress, and he said the girl seemed to be holding him, and they seemed to be talking to each other. Suddenly, Kennedy comes in. Sirhan and the girl move towards the middle of the room. Sirhan steps forward as if he's going to shake Kennedy's hand, but then the girl pinches him in a way that suddenly triggers him feeling like he was back at the target range. He'd spent six hours at a target range that day and also a few days prior. He'd, you know, literally been shooting, and again, probably under hypnotic suggestion at that time, too. But all of a sudden, all Sirhan saw in that room was targets, and that's what he was firing at, if we're to believe what he said. And now, if he's lying, what is he lying about? You know, it's like, it's been so long, there's literally no one to protect. It doesn't make sense that he's lying. And the people who have interviewed him, even the police, his first interviewer is like, he's telling the truth about he, what he remembers, but he honestly didn't remember what happened in the pantry until he was put under hypnosis, and then he couldn't remember it the way he was questioned by Bernard Diamond, his first you know, hypnotist. But under Dan Brown, it became clear. And then, so he's firing at targets after the girl touches him, and the next thing he remembers is being choked and coming out of the hypnosis just briefly, because he's literally like dying at that point, and going, oh, my gosh, I have a gun. I must have shot somebody. And then he's kind of back under for a while. And, in fact, I, I quote extensively from his conversations with the police for the next three hours after his arrest because it's bizarre. And they ask him simple questions. Are you married? And he says, I don't know. And they're like, well, what's your name? And he doesn't give them a name. And is this the car you drove? I don't know. I don't remember. And they're like, how can you not remember the car you drove? And that's when William Jordan, one of the sergeants, questioned him, kind of stuck up for Surrey and said, well, he seems to be honest. Um, what he does remember, he will tell you, but he doesn't seem to remember things. He remembers this giant urn of coffee. Have we made too much of the coffee pot? Some have suggested, some researchers, maybe there was Rohypnol or something in there. It wasn't in the coffee, but there was a bartender. If Kennedy had gone the original route, which was down the stairs and to the left out the backstage if he'd gone straight off the stage and to the left instead of straight off the stage and to the right, he would have gone downstairs. There were witnesses who said there was a makeshift bar right there, and a woman had actually gone up to get a drink at that makeshift bar, and a girl in a polka dot dress with a turned-up nose intercepted her and said, oh, you're not going to get served at this end. And she's like, well, watch me. And it ended up that the girl took her money and took it to probably the real bartender, because it looks like this might have been a fake bartender, and then returned shortly thereafter with their drinks, toast to our next president without naming him, and walks away. And they didn't think anything about that at the time until they heard the police were looking for a girl in a polka dot dress, and then they remembered the conversation, because she was with her sister, and and they're like, yeah, it was kind of funny she didn't name who we were toasting. We'll pick up on this point when we come back. Lisa Peace, the RFK assassination, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Lisa Peace, a lie too big to fail. The real history of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Now back to Sirhan Sirhan. You asked about the coffee urn, and I was talking about there was a, a bar downstairs, and in under hypnosis with this Dan Brown, Sirhan felt like he knew that bartender. He's like, we could communicate without words, as if they had a prior relationship. And he was seen walking around with a milky liquid, and somebody specifically described a red candy in it, not a maraschino cherry. And maybe the guy didn't know what a maraschino cherry was or, you know, it looked like, but maybe it really was a red candy. There was scopolamine, a very uh, hypnotic drug that uh, came in candy form at that point in time. See, I had experimented with different, you know, combinations of drugs and hypnosis because, under hypnosis, some of the memory, it may be recoverable, but with drugs in hypnosis, it's often the case where the memory was not recoverable, you know, later. And that would be important for a covert operation if that's what it was. And Eve Hansen, when she was down at this bar, she noticed three men who looked, you know, after the fact, kind of like Sirhan, dark, curly, young-haired men just sitting against the wall motionless. And she thought that was so odd and didn't know what they were doing there. And I'm thinking... That was the, the downstairs team. You know, I in my book, I, I go into a lot of other witnesses, and it appears there were two teams. There were even two girls in a polka dot dress that were drawing attention all night, but they looked very different. Because they didn't know which route Bobby would take. Right. They didn't know until the last minute, and it was clear that they didn't. They had to get him there because it was the last big primary. And once he became the nominee, which was a very good chance at the – convention in Chicago, then he would have had extra protection. It would have been that much harder to get him, and plus it would have been that much more suspicious. At this point, it was easier to sell the story that some crazy, you know, kid got into the kitchen and killed him. Well, here's the other other thing, Lisa. I mentioned, you know, um, there's never a trial in these cases. The other thing is they change the parade route. With Kennedy, of course, we know they changed the parade route. Right, and I really want to shoot that down in the RFK case, because like I said, they didn't have to change the route. It really didn't matter. They planned for every contingency. In fact, ah, I even quote one of the Watergate burglars and E. Howard Hunt co-wrote an article talking about how carefully you plan for covert operations. It, it used to be called the Directorate of Plans. They do planning. They map out every possible contingency. They rehearse it over and over. In fact, one of the witnesses in my book might have heard one such rehearsal. She heard noise behind the stage Kennedy wasn't speaking. It was a few days earlier. But she heard enough noise that she went backstage to find out what was going on. And she found a bunch of young, dark-haired, you know, curly-haired men, uh, one of which looked very much like Sirhan but couldn't have been Sirhan. And they were, like, drawing things on the floor and talking to each other in a language she didn't recognize. And she didn't, you know, I, I can't remember if she said she didn't think it was Spanish. I, I could be mixing that up with another witness. Uh, but it's it's very possible this thing was rehearsed. In fact, several members of the team that I described were there June 2nd, which was a couple of days before the primary. Also, somebody saw what appeared to be Sirhan, but was probably a lookalike, up in Oregon. A guy had bumped into a guy who was a dead ringer for Sirhan at a time where Sirhan couldn't have been there, and the guy had a gun, and he could feel it when he bumped into him. So it's as if they did try several times to get him, and they only succeeded this last time. I mean, that's the other thing. People think it's like, well, you know, if they're that bad, you know, how come they were able to pull it off? It's like, well, they didn't the first three right. times. Right. Well, it's they, like JFK and the last time. Like in JFK, right. they wanted to get him in Miami and they tried to get him in Chicago. 
Right, um, and then there seems to be a DC plot earlier that summer too. Yeah, it's like they tried three times and it failed. The fourth one, they got him in Dallas. But let me just come back to the parade yeah. route. You say it doesn't matter, and I agree that they had planned for either location. But the, here's the key: if Sirhan Sirhan did this on his own, how could he have known that Kennedy suddenly was going to be directed through through the the pantry? And to be oh, there. yeah. Well, if Sergeant did it on his own, you know, then all the evidence doesn't fit. Yeah, it's like I don't even want to go down that route because it's clear he didn't. And and when I say it's clear he didn't, again, the witnesses who saw them both put Sirhan about two to his, his gun muzzle, because the police were very specific about that. They asked, where was the gun muzzle relative to Kennedy? And the witnesses who saw them both at the same time put the muzzle two to three feet away. And to the left, right? There were right? people who saw a gun up next to Kennedy, but they could never connect Sirhan to it. And there was a gun right up next to Kennedy because right. somebody killed him from that close distance. Powder burns behind was... his ear. Powder burns behind his ear. Right, right. And he was shot not just behind the ear at a very close distance, but he was shot three more times in kind of the, the back right underarm area. One shot went right through the coat, but the other two went through his body. One went literally through his body and out. Another one lodged at the base of his neck. Uh, but these were those shots, according to Dwayne Wolfer, who was the criminalist for the LAPD and did a lot of shenanigans with the evidence. But he said in court that he thought those shots were probably made at a quarter of an inch. I mean, we're talking literally the gun is right up against the body practically. But he said, I multiplied the distance to get three quarters of an inch, and then I padded it a little just to make it, you know, to out to three inches. But what he really says is he started with a quarter of an inch, and he thought that was the right amount. And he just added the others kind of by, you know, to try and make it right. more credible that Sirhan could possibly have gotten that close. How could they have botched the, well, that's a rhetorical question, I suppose, but the, 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 the ballistics here. They, can, can, yeah, they well, cannot match yeah. the bullets to the gun. Uh, talk to me about the ballistics. Yeah, this is this is really significant, and that's that right after the autopsy, this is the first time that Wolfer gets a bullet that he can compare to the victim bullets and to the test bullets. And as soon as he compares it, he compares it not to another test bullet. So he must have known on sight it didn't match the test bullets. He must have known just by looking at it. Didn't. So he compares it instead to the Goldstein bullet, and then he shuts down for the night. It's like 4 o'clock at night. He goes away for five hours, comes back at 9 p.m., makes a photo micrograph, a bullet comparison photo of what he called the Kennedy bullet and the Goldstein bullet, and we later find out that they were two fake bullets. He I got makes a, a okay. fake picture. Got to jump in here, Lisa. Got to jump in here. We're yes. going to take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about the bullets, okay. and uh, we'll okay. do that in mere moments. Lisa Peace, my guest on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. We were talking about ballistics, and you mentioned the Goldstein bullet. We should mention, was that Ira Goldstein who uh, was one of the uh, injured? Uh, Right. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that five other people took bullets in the pantry besides Robert Kennedy, who had two bullets removed from him. And then in addition, Kennedy was shot another two times. One bullet went through his chest and out. Another one went through his coat. 
and didn't penetrate any skin. Um, there were three bullet holes in the ceiling that the police would allow, even though Wolfer had said, it's unbelievable how many holes there are in the ceiling. Three doesn't sound unbelievable, so I suspect there were many more. And uh, and then there were four bullet holes in the pantry door frames, and there are pictures and photos of these. And in my book, I found video of the, not just the door frames, but the piece of paneling that had been destroyed. And I was so excited when I found that. I literally called Jim D. Eugenio. I said, you've got to drive up here right now. I'm so afraid this will disappear. Because at that point, as far as I knew, I was the only one who had ever seen it. And I'm like, I, you know, you got to come right now. And so he's like, okay, Lisa. <laughs> he drove an hour. And then he got it, and he knew right away how important that video was. So I paid $750 for the rights to air six seconds of video on the Internet in perpetuity. <laughs> And in my book, I provide the link to that video. So uh, I encourage people to look for that. I've tweeted it out, and it's been posted, so people should be able to find it. But uh, uh, in the video, it shows a hand. There's no sound, but it shows a hand points at the two holes in the southwest part of the door frame, which are, uh, you know, what do I say, almost horizontal, not quite. And then the, the hand pulls a piece of wood, which is the paneling from the, the door frame, and and you can see the same two holes that are in the post you see are in that piece of paneling. So then you understand that the holes in the wall that you see in those pictures could not possibly have been made by pantry carts because they're tiny. They're like pencil size, smaller than pencil size holes. And nor were they made by pencils because that was another explanation that had been floated. Old people just stuck pencils in the wall. Well, you can't stick a pencil through three quarters of an inch of pine wood. It won't go. It'll break. Right. Some pencils some researchers have said. Some researchers have identified 13 shots fired. How, how many do you yes, figure? Yes, and there are at least 13 holes. Uh, because, again, you've got the seven bullets in the pantry victims, three holes in the ceiling. The police decided one bullet went up and down and hit one of the people, but one bullet must have been lost, so that's your eight. And then you have the four holes in the pantry door frames. And then there's the bullet still in the wood in an AP photo in the backstage door where Kennedy exited. And it's, it's near the bottom of the door, but the, that room was kind of at an upward slant. So if somebody had been firing from about Sirhan's position, the bullet could easily have entered right there. So that's 13 right there. But in my book, I go further because there are reports of additional bullets. And in that video I was just describing, the hand lingers and points at what looks to be a bullet still in the wood of the paneling that didn't penetrate all the way back to the post. So you won't see it in any of the photos. It's only in that video. And I can only imagine the hand points there for a while because it was significant and not, you know, a blemish on the wood. So how do you get 13-plus shots from an eight-shot Iverson pistol? (laughs) Well, it's worse than that because my book, again, I argue strongly from the evidence Sir Han was firing blanks. And there's so many reasons that would be the case. If I were planning an assassination, I'm not going to take a kid under hypnosis who thinks he's firing at targets and give him real bullets because what if his first bullet kills my assassin before the assassin gets to kill Robert Kennedy? That would make no sense. Plus, if I'm the assassin and I understand the setup and the scenario, I go, what? He's going to be firing real bullets at me? Heck no, I'm not taking that job. (laughs) That makes no sense whatsoever. But if I know... The kid's hypnotized, but he's firing blanks. Don't worry about it. You can't possibly get hit. And in addition, then, there's somebody next to Surahan, which, again, is in my book. Three credible witnesses put a shooter on the table next to Surahan, firing down into the crowd. 
And there are advantages to that because your peripheral vision at the top of your head is very shallow. You can only see a little bit above the top. If you move your own hands just straight up above your eyes, they disappear before they go too far. So you could have somebody literally hiding in plain sight. And the fact that only three people saw somebody shooting there out of like 75 is pretty good. And even they weren't sure what they saw. And, you know, it was a blur. And the guy who was on the table looked like Sirhan and had the same color blue on, although it appeared he had a suit on and not a little pullover uh, velour thing as Sirhan had. So, like I said, if there's 13 shots and Sirhan's firing blank, then there were two other shooters in the pantry. But then (laughs) there's even another gunman that two very credible witnesses again saw that got right up to Kennedy's head. Because if... Saying Caesar's the guard who was at Kennedy's elbow, and he was perfectly positioned to make those underarm shots without being seen or noticed. Eugene and Caesar, he he's the ace security guard, right? Eugene, Eugene right, Caesar, right? Ace and he's also, even if he's not shooting, he's perfectly positioned to hide a shooter with his big body because mm. he was a fairly big man. What he's not perfectly positioned to do is to make that headshot because his arm would be completely noticeable and exposed. Everybody could see him reaching up. It makes more sense that somebody else, you know, would sneak in and do that. And it appears there was a young busboy who looked, again, just like Sirhan. In fact, I had one of these witnesses argue with me. He's like, no, it was Sirhan. I know it was Sirhan. I'm like, but Sirhan wasn't wearing a white busboy outfit. He was captured on the scene. He didn't have time to change clothes. He was wearing a blue pullover velour shirt. He's like, no, he's going to white busboy. <laughs> and that just shows the power of the illusion. In fact, the CIA had a magician on staff, John Mulholland, who said it's so important in a magic act, you don't just fool the eye because the mind will eventually work the trick out. He said the trick is really to fool the mind. And that's kind of what happened in the pantry. By using Sirhan lookalikes, for any shooter, anybody who saw him figured they had to have seen Sirhan because they were all told over and over by the press, by the media, by the police, there was only one shooter. So whoever they saw... If it even remotely resembled Sirhan, they were then certainly softer. Right. Well, what about the, the, course, the young man that's cradling Sirhan. Robert Kennedy in that famous photo? He looks like Sirhan. Well, Juan Romero, I, I don't think he looks like Sirhan, but uh, and Juan Romero was a wonderful man and certainly had nothing to do with the shooting. And I, I might have had the last interview with him because, sadly, he just died recently. Oh. And I had just been speaking to him on the phone, and a couple of weeks later I saw on his Facebook page that he had passed away. I was very sad by that. But he confirmed something I've always suspected. He, I asked, were there other busboys near you? Were there other kitchen workers? And he named somebody that's not in any of the LAPD records. And sadly, he couldn't think of the last name. He only remembered the first name. But it's, it's clear that there were other witnesses who were there who were not... Uh, either not interviewed or their interviews have disappeared, because this is another pattern I found in my 25 years of research in this case, okay. that people who saw something important were quietly disappeared from the record, but there's often a trace. It's like it was mentioned in somebody else's interview. For There's a guy, Charles Winner, who must have had a really interesting interview because he shows up in Michael Wayne's file, and he shows up in another highly suspicious character named John Corey. He shows up in his file. But Wiener's own interview appears to be missing. And, again, I've confirmed some of these with the California State Archives and written them, and they're like, no, you know, no such interview. Uh, but clearly there was at some point. So people who saw strong evidence of conspiracy, wow, that stuff is just missing now forever from the record. 
And unless the LAPD kept double books, unless somebody comes forward, we'll never know, like, the rest of the story on some of those points. How many witnesses saw this woman in the polka dot dress leaving the hotel with another man saying, we got him? There were two witnesses who heard that conversation, not just Sandy Serrano. And we can talk about that after the break. All right. Do we know, we just tease this part, and we'll talk about it later. Do we know who that woman in the polka dot dress was? I believe we don't. I believe that the identifications that have been made are faulty for reasons I'm happy to go into. <laughs> All right. And we will do that. All right. Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. My name is Richard Serrett, and we will be back with Hour 2 with Lisa right after this. Thank you.